We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. God's Word says here in 3 John, beginning in verse 1, The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. Is your soul prospering in the Lord? For I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Amen. Verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. He's talking about showing hospitality, care for those who need it and are traveling through. Verse 6, Who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. That is certainly one reason why we show Christian hospitality, not just to those within our congregation, our local church, but also to traveling missionaries, other pastors. In so doing, you are partaking in the work of the gospel. Verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write, but I do not wish to write to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we shall speak face to face. Peace to you, our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles, please, to Luke's Gospel and Chapter 4. I uh, had to uh, cut out, uh, cut off rather early um, without finishing the message last week, and frankly, I'm glad that I did that because. It gave me an opportunity to spend some more hours with the text, and I have given you a revised and expanded version of the notes. So if you uh, are putting the notes together in a folder or something, you can just take the last week's ones and just discard and replace with these, because this has all the material from last week plus 
and a few improvements in the first half of the message and then uh, extensive additions in the second half. It was just too long of a text to uh, address in one one message. Last time we looked at the rather perhaps dark uh, kind of viewpoint of the text in which we looked at what the devil's strategies are to bring temptation to us. And uh, we know when we made the argument last time that although the devil doesn't make us sin, he can arrange circumstances, situations. Uh, I don't know about putting thoughts exactly in our mind, but uh, he can kind of urge us to do bad things. And we have, a, of course, a problem in that we have a sinful nature inside of us that responds to that kind of prompting the circumstances around us and within us that cause us to uh, be tempted or solicited to do evil. So what are his, uh, some of his wily strategies? Well, we looked at those. He first does entice or tempt us to sin, tries to get us to fall into evil because that will uh, discredit God and his people and so on. He also tries to get us to depend upon ourselves instead of depending on the Lord. You know, kind of the I can handle it myself mentality, uh, pull myself up by my own bootstraps or look, I'm just going to uh, forget God, you know, God, the one who owns the earth in all of its fullness, and I'm going to provide for myself, I I think. You know, that's what a person thinks who's uh, apart from the Lord. Satan, thirdly, tries to get us to worship him. He does that directly to Jesus. Listen, if he does, makes this attack on the Lord Jesus, do you suppose that he might make it on others weaker than Jesus, let's say? I'm sure he does, and in fact, he has succeeded in getting millions and billions of the world's population to worship false gods and idols, so he tries to get us to worship him. Satan, fourthly, attempts to get us to put God to the test in various ways. The Old Testament passage that we'll look at again this morning a little bit, the people of Israel put God to the test and say, is God really among us or not? Is he going to care for us or not? And they were complaining against the Lord. Jesus wasn't going to do that, nor put himself in a particular situation that was dangerous or arbitrarily uh, unnecessary and throwing himself down off the temple. Very interesting, the Lord uh, uh, was invited to do this. And why? Well, there's a number of different thoughts about that. One, just the kind of, you know, God will protect you kind of thing, uh, presumption. Satan was asking him to do, but also some of the uh, writers that I was looking at suggested that the rabbis believed that the son, uh, the Messiah rather, would present himself to the people by standing on top of the temple. And if the Lord were to go to the top of that temple and throw himself down in some spectacular way, perhaps the people would see him and receive him as their Messiah. Of course, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible doesn't say that, but that's what some believed. And so perhaps it was a way to draw attention to himself. And of course, uh, well, we'll see in just a moment how this would have short-circuited the whole ministry of Christ. Satan also, fifthly, misuses the Word of God as bait. No surprise there, as we said last time, that the unbelievers twist the scriptures all the time and try to make them say 
things that they do not say. Uh, we also looked at uh, the idea that um, the temptations were quite uh, rigorous, very difficult uh, for the Lord Jesus. Um, they were not just, you know, softballs, as we said last time. So that was all last week. We, we covered this kind of dark subject, but gave light by exposing the devil's strategies that have worked on humanity for millennia. It's important for us to be aware of those strategies. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.11, we don't want to be ignorant of his devices. Do you remember that section of Scripture? We are not ignorant of his devices. We see, we can see how he does work in people's lives and hearts and arranges the circumstances. I've seen it many times in, a, in my pastoral role where you see what God is doing or what Satan is doing in the world more widely and what Satan is doing in individual lives and causing division and sowing discord and all of that. One of the general approaches that seems to work so well on humans is what we call the boiling the frog approach. Uh, he doesn't get people necessarily to fall into some huge sin on day one, but the process is that you start a little habit, a, a way of thinking, an attitude, a practice, then it becomes fixed, and you can't see outside of that. You move another step and another step, and after a while, you're an entirely different spot than you were years ago. Perhaps your spirit has grown cold. Perhaps you have become unfaithful in your church attendance and ministry to others. Maybe you've lost the grip on sound doctrine and are embracing false teaching. Possibly you've become bitter and angry at people over the years when when, when earlier in your life you would never would have imagined yourself to be in that position. I've remarked before, using a quotation from 2 Samuel, how the mighty have fallen. Some of the people you would never expect, the most seemingly spiritually mature people, fall by the wayside and do not continue with the Lord or with their church. They usually do not fall in a moment of time, but rather... Satan uses the world and the flesh to move people slowly, almost imperceptibly, and by their own poor choices, they put themselves into a situation that's entirely wrong. And I ask you, therefore, have you fallen into temptation by this more subtle means? So I'm really kind of exposing number six on our list. We saw five of them from the text, but another general approach that we have to be aware of, the wiles of the devil. Well, we want to move on this morning to Jesus and his successful response to temptation. How did he respond to the temptations he faced? And this is not the end of this message. This is not the uh, kind of high highlight point, but it is important, I think, to traverse the passage again, this time with a focus on how Jesus responded to those temptations that were presented to him. And we see that in verse number one is the first way or characteristic. Jesus, it says, then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Spirit, and for us to succeed against temptation, we too need to be filled with God's Spirit. We do want to be victorious when temptation comes, do we not? Spirit filling is a crucial ingredient in facing temptation. Yes, even if you are famished, you know the word hangry, right? 
well, if you're spirit-filled, even if you're hungry, you shouldn't be angry. (laughs) Okay? Spirit-filling, crucial. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit all the time. Ephesians 5.18 says, don't be influenced or under control of wine, but be being kept filled with the Holy Spirit of God, not under the influence of other substances or anything but God's Spirit. Drunkenness, for instance, is absolutely forbidden for Christians there in that portion of Scripture. How do we know, though, if we're Spirit-filled? We don't determine so by emotions or external displays of so-called Spirit-filled worship. Spiritual fruit shows being filled with the Spirit, love and joy and peace and all of that stuff that we know from Galatians 5, patience and gentleness and meekness and faith and humility and self-control and righteousness and truth, light, and being filled with God's Word shows that we're full of God's Spirit. The Spirit of God superintended the production of the Word. He teaches us the Word. He enables us to understand the Word. And when we're filled with it, then we are filled in effect with God's Spirit. Of course, with a true understanding of it, we must assume. So he's filled with God's Spirit. If you are running on fumes, if I can continue to use the filling metaphor here, filling referring to influence, but if you're running on empty, how do you expect to face temptation successfully? Secondly, Jesus not only is filled with the Spirit, but he uses the Word of God and its principles to repel the temptations and blasphemies of Satan. For you to succeed, against temptation, you too must know and be able to use God's Word. In each case, when the Lord is confronted with these, if you are the Son of God or fall down and worship me kinds of statements that, Je- that the Satan makes to Jesus, he quotes from Scripture, Deuteronomy 6 and 8. And I want you to look at each of those just for a moment and see what you can glean from them. If you go back in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 8, That's the first one, and then the Lord works back to chapter 6, a couple of verses there. Deuteronomy 8, verse number 3, Moses talking to the people in the second giving of the law, and it says, So he, God, humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor your fathers know. Now, there's a parallel here. The people of Israel were hungry. Jesus was definitely hungry. He went longer than they did. He went longer without food than they did, I would imagine. I can't imagine a whole nation going 40 days without food. Uh, And the way the context is written in the the books of Exodus and, and Numbers and so on. So he humbled you. He allowed you to hunger. Fed you with manna. Here's why. That he might make you to know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So God allowed the nation to hunger. He made them depend on him for their sustenance so that they would know that mankind lives by God, not by bread. Bread is a figure for that which is earthly, worldly, temporal, not eternal. So kind of rushing over this, it feels like, but just pause and ask yourself for a moment. Do you believe that God's Word is that important to your life? Is it more necessary than your daily food? 
Is it better to you than much fine gold? Is it more precious than rubies? Or is it something that can gather dust and it doesn't really matter? Does it really matter? If, if you had a choice between a meal and God's word, the meal were taken away or God's word were taken away, which would you choose? I believe that God's word is that important to life. And I want you to believe that same way as well. It might seem like weird. You say, well, I I don't need to read the Bible three times a day to stay alive. I need to have enough calories to stay alive. But if you have no connection to God, no connection to life eternal, you can sustain yourself all you want, even 80, 90 years. But what happens at the end? And you know where that bread came from that you ate for 80 or 90 years anyway? God gave it to you. God gave it to you. He gave you the ability to get wealth, the ability to earn money, the ability to buy that food, put you in a society where there was food available. You know, if you, if you didn't have food but you had salvation, if you didn't have food but you had the Word of God and you died, what would happen to you? wouldn't be a bad outcome. To go and be with Christ is far better. And there are some people in world history who have faced that. They face persecution. They face starvation. God permitted that way for them to perish. But if they had God's word, they had everything they needed. The second portion that the Lord uses in Deuteronomy 6, verse 13 And this is in the context of the great Shema passage in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is like the, I would almost say, the pinnacle confession of a Jewish person, the pinnacle confession and statement of monotheism. By the way, when I say monotheism, I was thinking of this this morning. Monotheism means that there is only one mono, God, theism. But we might think of it sometimes as monotheism means, well, I just worship one God. I don't worship a plurality of deities and all that. But I want you to go to the next step and remember that it means there are no other gods. You can't legitimately worship anything else because there is nothing to really worship that's worthy of worship. There's only one God for anybody and everybody. That applies across the board, whatever religion you believe in, whatever false god, whatever demon, whatever idol that you believe in, the Bible says and is true that there is only one God. It's not just that you have one God and everybody else has their little gods, and that's all fine. No, that's not fine. There's only one true and living God. God demands exclusivity of worship. He is the only God, the only one worthy of worship. The other so-called gods are worthy only of rejection of disdain, of turning away. Now, in that temptation, Jesus is experiencing the pull of Satan, the solicitation to sin by shortcutting the path to the kingdom. Jesus knows he's Messiah, and he knows he's going to rule the kingdom. He knows he's going to come to the Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, and he's going to receive the right to rule over the earth He's going to take over the kingdoms of the world, 
And Satan offers that to him, short-circuiting that whole lengthy process of the suffering of Christ and the glory to follow. I'll give you all these kingdoms now because they're mine to give if you will but worship me. But Jesus knew that he had to pass through the sufferings of the cross to fulfill Scripture and to save his people. The devil was asking Christ to break the Scriptures. Now, any time the devil or anybody asks you to break the Scriptures, that's a temptation. You know, did God really say in the day that you eat of it you will surely die? The the serpent's voice echoes down through the ages over and over and over again, telling people to doubt God's word, outright deny God's word, destroy God's word, break the scriptures. You can't do that. Jesus wasn't about to depend on himself even for legitimate needs without showing a dependence on God. He was not about to break the scriptures. He was not certainly about to worship uh, the devil. You go down to chapter 6 in Deuteronomy, where we are in verse 16. Moses says, and Jesus uh, rehearses, recites, You shall not tempt or put the Lord your God to the test as you tempted him at Massa. So do not show presumption or have anger against God when he does not provide what you want or uh, the timing or seems to be missing from the action. In, in, uh, this, this refers back in history to Exodus, in Exodus chapter 7. And it says in Exodus 7, uh, 1 through 7 is the, the uh, lengthier passage, I think. So, um, sorry, I must, be in the wrong, I must be in the wrong portion there. Well, I can remember what it's talking about. So, What they were saying was they tempted the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Will he prove to be among us? Among us meaning in supply for us and care for us and carry us through this. Satan is basically saying to Jesus, if God is with you and you are his son, then he will protect you in your foolish action. To follow the temptation for Jesus would be to presume and not to trust in his Father, okay? To go up on the temple and arbitrarily throw himself down, put himself in some dangerous situation for what? Reputation, Uh, the people would see him, that they would think he's the Messiah, that he would prove that God was with him. He didn't need to prove God was with him. God had been with him all 40 days. And by the way, these are only three temptations that we have recorded. I don't think that's all of them. You know, text tells us after temptations were done, all through that time. And then, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, they look at the end of the passage going back to Luke chapter 4, and they say, and the devil at the end there left him. Well, what does it say, actually? It says, uh, departed from him until an opportune time. Do you suppose there were no more temptations after this? Well, he was a human, Jesus was, God too, but I mean, think of it. The disciples trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross. And Jesus says to Peter just exactly what he said to the devil here. Get behind me, Satan. Repelling the, the, the solicitation even from one of his closest friends. 
to sin? Or what do you suppose about the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus said, not my will? You know, it would be awfully nice to not have to face physical suffering, to not have to face being in effect forsaken by God, have the wrath of the Father upon him. He never knew that, that disconnect from God the Father. Always in perfect harmony with the Father. Never judged by him. So it would be easy to kind of just skip out on that. This is the devil's last-ditch effort to try to get him to turn away from the plan that God had. So Jesus was filled with the Spirit. Jesus used the Word of God contextually, accurately. Thirdly, Jesus does not depend upon his own powers, omnipotent in his case as he is. Instead, he depends on the Lord. He was learning, as Israel did, that God permitted him to hunger so that he and humans would know that they do not live by bread alone, but real life comes through the words that proceed from the mouth of God, showing dependence, even in in a legitimate need. Jesus needs food to survive as a human. Food is very important to us too, isn't it? But how important is God's word to us? We too have to depend on the Lord to supply for us. Instead of relying just on our own native powers as if we're to succeed uh, that way against temptation. Number four, Jesus' response to temptation doesn't only involve the Spirit and the Word of God and not depending on his own strength, but also, fourthly, Jesus refuses to worship anyone but the Father. said positively, he worships God the Father and does so exclusively. And if you are to succeed against temptation, you must also refuse to worship anything else other than God. You can't worship yourself. You can't worship the thing or person you're tempted by. You can't worship the thing that you want, and so on. You know, sometimes people say, well, what is idolatry? Well, I mean, the Bible tells us covetousness is idolatry. It's one manifestation of idolatry because you're putting that thing you covet above God. There can be all kinds of things that you do that with in your life. There's certain maybe categories we could kind of reduce them down to, but you get the idea? Idolatry is a very severe issue, and it's still present with us, even if you say, well, I never bowed down to a statue before. You don't have to. You can bow down in your brain, in your heart, to something else. Look at... uh, Also, when the devil asks Jesus to fall down and worship him, verse 8, Jesus answered and said to him, this is our fifth, I think, our fifth response that Jesus uses, or technique, if you will, to temptation. Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan. In other words, he resisted the devil. Remember James chapter 4, 7? Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. You know, if you're, you're kind of you know, around a temptation, you're kind of playing with it in your mind and thinking about it, you're not resisting the devil. You're getting closer and closer to falling into that because your flesh wants to do that. You have to make a hard-line decision. Okay, I say it this way, a hard-nosed decision. I'm going to resist the devil. I have to do that if I'm to succeed against temptation. 
not only the devil, but I have to resist my flesh, the pull of the flesh. Finally, uh, number six, if I have my numbering right here, I've got them in letters in my notes there for you, letter F. Jesus will not put himself in dangerous situations or any situation, physical or spiritual, in which he would be presuming upon God to help protect him from uh, natural consequences of what he did. What, if you go to the top of a high building and you throw yourself off, what's going to happen? You're going to get smashed at the bottom, okay? As they say, it's not the fall that does you in. It's the sudden stop, okay? What's the purpose of doing that and trying to say, well, I'm going to do this thing that has natural consequences, but I'm going to expect God to rescue me from those consequences. You know, I'll go in this sin and God will forgive me. Or I'll go down this path, and, but I'm not going to go too far. God will stop me from doing that. Or, or I'll be able to stop you know, before, before the alcohol gets too much or before the drugs take over. Or, or I'll go with these friends, so-called, but I won't do the bad things they're doing. You know? And then the frog gets a little warmer in the pot, and next thing you know, you're doing what you didn't think you would be doing. Jesus refuses to question whether God is with him because he knows God is with him all the time. So very simply, to succeed in temptation, you cannot put yourself into compromising situations as if God will protect you regardless of your poor choices. God very well may not and often does not protect you from your poor choices. You put God to the test, he's not going to take you up on that as if as if he's your servant, you're his servant. So let's look a little bit for a moment at our response to temptation. Jesus' temptations were a little different than ours. I say in a sense they're kind of harder than the temptations we face. Why is that? I've said this before because he faced them all the way to the end and was victorious in them. We, when we fall in a temptation, we haven't, we haven't felt the exceeding pressure of that temptation all the way to the bitter end. We fell before we got to the end of the, of the actual pressure of the temptation. So it kind of was, you know, we was short-circuited the process. He, was, he went all the way. So we succumb earlier in the process than he did. He felt the, you know, he, he felt the screws all the way pressuring him. His temptations also were a bit more, I could say, in quotes than ours, and that he had powers to test that we don't have. You know, if I were to come to you and say, hey, turn these stones into bread because you're hungry, you say, well, <laughs> that's easy. I can't do it. And so you don't face some temptations because you cannot. By the way, that's a blessing. If God doesn't give you the ability to, to chase your lust as far as it can go, if he blocks, if he restrains, if he... Uh, causes there to be an inability to do that, thank God for that. He restrained the sin of Abimelech in Genesis 20, I think it was, if you recall, so he wouldn't sin against Abraham and Sarah. Remember that? He restrained the sin. Thank God for restraining the sin. By the way, if you're a parent here, you have a job to do. Eli didn't do that job. That job was to restrain the sin of his sons. Okay? However you've got to do that, you've got to restrain evil in the foolish young person that wants to do it, okay? So, 
So his temptations are a little bit different than ours. We understand that. We don't have his omnipotent powers. But we have another issue, and that is our temptations come from outside and from where? From within. Where did Jesus' temptations come from? Only really from outside. He didn't have a sin nature working in him to try to cause him to sin. By the way, in the Garden of Eden, Adam also did not have an internal solicitation to do evil, did he? Initially. Initially. He was pure, untested, creaturely holiness, we could call it. But he didn't have a sin nature until after he fell into sin. Eve the same. But he fell to that. All in all, the Bible sums up the situation. You know, there's a little difference here and a little difference there. But he was tempted in all points like we are. Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin. And let me say this too. In our temptations, we have all the human resources that Jesus had. You know, what, what infinite power did Jesus appeal to to get out of the temptation from Satan? He didn't, as far as I can tell, none. He used the Word of God. That was, that's the miraculous power in a sense. But he didn't, you know, vaporize Satan or throw him into prison, which he could have done. He, he responded with words, the word of God. He said, get behind me, Satan. He resisted. He was full of the Holy Spirit. All of that stuff is available to you today, not just to pastors, missionaries. You all, regular old Christians, have access to all of those resources, the full complement of resources that Jesus used to face temptation you have as well. Notice also that none of the temptations requested by the devil include faith in God or love for God as their motivation. You're never going to find Satan encouraging people to love God or have faith in him. Even the one about making bread, which itself wasn't a bad thing to care for a human need of nourishment, but that was to trust God, trust in self, not in God. And, and, and do so, to do something in response favorably to what Satan says, that's a sin in itself. Okay, so Jesus wasn't about to do that. If Satan is asking you to do it, you know it's, pretty, it's going to be wrong, so don't be doing that. But all of his responses, Jesus' responses, were firmly grounded in faith toward God and love for God, and our responses must be as well. When you face a test, ask yourself, what response would best honor the Lord? What response is the loving response? What response shows faith in God? Does falling to temptation ever show faith and love toward God? You can say pretty much no, it doesn't. Pretty obvious. So I think that's a help to me. I hope it's a help to you. And you think, am I exhibiting love for God, love for my neighbor, faith in God, dependence upon God, or am I just wanting, just doing this out of pure selfishness? Now, it's difficult news that we all face temptations and none of us have handled them properly like Jesus did. You know, sometimes we do, many times we haven't, certainly in our past, before we were saved. As such, we start out on the devil's team, on his side. Whether we like it or not, that's the reality. The wrath of God abides on those that are unbelievers. But the good news is that Jesus knows this and that's why he came, to save sinners. He died in the place of sinners like you and me to take the heat for us, I use that term heat advisedly, 
so that we could be blessed with eternal life. He requires us to respond, though, to that properly according to his word. You know, Acts 17 says God commands all men everywhere to repent. Acts 20, verse 21, the Christian message is to repent toward God and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it in the Romans 10 language, to confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. If you confess and believe that truth, the Bible promises you will be granted righteousness and salvation. And when you are created anew with that new standing before God and regenerated from the inside out, then God himself will undertake to come alongside of you and help you in your temptations. And who else better to do that than the one who was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He wants you to be righteous. He doesn't want you to just be forgiven. Okay? In fact, to think about salvation as just, you know, God forgives me and everything else stays the same, is, that's a wrong notion of what salvation is. Yes, he forgives you, but he wants to make you righteous. He wants to help you to overcome temptation so that you don't add sin to sin. Now, I come to the big picture. Give me just a couple more minutes. I asked myself as I thought about this, and, and with some kind of more thinking about the homiletical side of the message, instead of just kind of teaching through uh, just kind of the bare facts or to draw out what we have drawn out, which has been good and very helpful and useful. But this section of Luke is not meant to be Jesus, you know, master class on how to handle temptation. It is that, but it's not meant just to be that, you know. Wouldn't you like that, you know, YouTube advertisement comes up, Jesus pops up on the screen and says, come to my master class on how to handle temptation, you know, in 15 sessions, we'll give you everything that you need. There's something bigger going on here than that. A big question, if not the biggest question underlying the text is this. Listen, who is your God? Who is your God? And will you be faithful to him? God records for us here three temptations that Satan put to Jesus. One had to do with eating, the second with direct worship, and the third with putting God to the test. But I think there's a common thread among them having to do with your relationship to God. You either make yourself your God, you know, you make your own bread. Or, and as Paul says in Philippians, I think it is, he says, the, the, these false teachers, their God is their what? Their God is their belly. Or you make the devil or other idols your God, like bowing down before him because you want the world, you want what the world has to offer, or you will have a twisted version of the real God as your God. I think that's in the last temptation. You know, the God that you can just call upon who's going to do your bidding. The God who you can put to the test and he'll enable you to do that foolishness. That's not the real God. That's a twisted version of the real God. The influences of the world outside of us, 
the sinful nature inside of us and the devil prowling around us all conspire to get us to worship something other than the true God. That is Satan's game plan. He's fine if you worship yourself. He's fine if you worship a false version of the true God. He's fine especially if you worship him or some other idol, some other demonic influence. That's his, that's his strategy. After they left Egypt, Israel was 40 years in the wilderness. They failed these tests. The tests that God arranged for them through the natural progression of moving through unfriendly wilderness. They lusted after food instead of desiring God. They fell into idolatry, worshiping Moloch and Remphan. You remember that from Acts chapter 7. They expected God to give them whatever they wanted. They doubted his presence among them. And despite the evidence, and they disregarded God's law. They put God to the test. Consequently, they died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. You see how I'm making this connection between all of these temptations and Satan trying to get Jesus to have another God than God the Father? And so that center in this passage, that center temptation to worship, and Jesus said, no, there's no other, there's no other God to worship but God my Father, not myself, not you, certainly, and not some twisted-up version of God as my enabling, you know, uh, the person that lets me do whatever I want to do with and everything's fine. He went 40 days in the wilderness with no food. He was given similar tests as the nation was. He passed with perfect marks as he trusted in the Lord. He rejected all three forms of worship. His God was not his belly. His God was not the devil. His God was not the enabling, give me whatever I want, God, who protects me from all my foolishness. He would not use his power for selfish ends or to prematurely kickstart God's kingdom on earth or do amazing feats that would draw attention to himself. We could also compare Jesus to the first Adam, he being the second Adam. The first Adam transgressed the clear and plain commandment of God. Eve, although she was deceived, was still capable. And what did, what did Satan tempt them with at that Temptation of the forbidden fruit. God knows that in the day you eat of it, what? You will be like God. So, really tempting them with idolatry, self-idolatry, trying to get them away from worshiping the true God. Jesus did not turn away from God when he was confronted by the serpent. Now, the tests were for Jesus so he could demonstrate his utter faithfulness to God and his worship of God, thus his fitness for ministry that he was about to undertake for the next three years. But the tests also are directed at us to show us his perfection, to leave us footsteps to follow. He shows us that overcoming even the most difficult temptations is possible and certainly overcoming the the temptation to worship someone other than God. We live in a world chock full of temptations in the media and in the world. And so my question is, are you going to follow Jesus' example in handling them? And even more importantly, would you follow his example in being 1,000% committed to God your Father in heaven so that you avert your eyes from the things that want to be your God? You say no to bad thoughts that want to 
drag you away from God. You pick new habits. You turn off old entertainment. You control your tongue. You regulate your emotions, tamp down your anger, lower your voice, check your tone, put a smile on your face instead of a nasty look. You abandon the silent treatment. You beat down unforgiveness in your heart. Those are all evidences of self-centeredness. You put those away because none of those are useful tools to glorify God or to show that you worship Him. So quit them and move on to things that are born out of faith toward God and love toward people. Reject any God but the true and living God. The text ends by telling us that Satan left Jesus alone for a little while, but there would be many other temptations throughout his life if he was a human, and he was. God didn't record most of those for us in Scripture, but he did detail the very human and internal struggle of Jesus at Gethsemane. But then, as here in Luke 4, Jesus chose not to give in to the lure of personal comfort, instead committing to do God's will and not his own. And so we see Jesus here demonstrated as the perfect God-fearing man who did not swerve from worship of the only true God. And so my encouragement to you is don't swerve yourself either into worshiping other things. Because that's really where temptation leads us, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you as we close our service. I ask that this will powerfully work in our hearts and save us from doing more sin. Thankful for the word of God and the work of Christ in that regard. Thank you in Jesus' name.